we'll get into the Psalms, but I do want to let you know that uh, with no apprehension whatsoever, the service on Sunday will be timely at 1030 and will be full in expectation. I want to read this to you. I found it to be very encouraging to me. It was written by Judge Andrew Napolitano. He was a judge for the Superior Court of New Jersey, and he is a judicial analyst for a broadcast network. He quotes from Thomas Jefferson, and by the way, if you want to be encouraged and inspired, oh, I know, pardon me, youth are excused. I missed that one, didn't I? But thanks for sitting. That was awesome. You made me feel like a great teacher. Just, but You're going to do better there. Thank you. Let me get back to this. So Thomas Jefferson, very encouraging if you have a chance to really listen to his heart and his mindset with regard to his confidence uh, concerning the Lord, his inspiration in many of the documents that he penned, his conviction with regard to the proper place of governance under the Lord, and governance not subordinating the Lord. So allow me to read this. I think it's well written. It's very timely. Um, and hopefully those of you that are listening that may need to just be able to know how to pray. Rightfully or rightful, liberty is unobstructed action according to our will within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law because the law is often but the tyrant's will and always so when it violates the right of an individual. Thomas Jefferson, 1743, uh, 1826, obviously is his lifespan. He continues, as if, now this is not Thomas Jefferson, this is the commentary, and I, I want to make sure I'm on first page here, uh, because that could definitely pose a problem. As if any nanny state governors had been sleepwalking through the tyrannical shutdowns and their disastrous consequences last spring and summer, as if they were ignorant of the economic destruction of those they barred from going to work or operating their businesses, as if they thought it is lawful to assault natural rights and constitutional guarantees, these same governors are now beginning another wave of interferences with personal liberty. Second paragraph. Slowly over the past 10 days, while the eyes of the public and the media have been on the counting of votes in the presidential election and the ensuing allegations and litigations, governors in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Connecticut, New York have threatened to impose and have begun to impose their unconstitutional, illegal, immoral, and illogical efforts to shut down society in order they claim to rid the land of the COVID-19 virus. And of course, I need to include as well uh, Washington, Oregon, and California. By doing so, they have reignited the age-old debate of individual liberty versus public safety. In this case, the safety they claim to be enhancing is safety from disease. Yet by their executive orders, they have purported to use state law to interfere with freedoms without due process that are guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. By doing that, 
they have set themselves up for criminal prosecution when normalcy returns. Fourth paragraph. Here's the backstory. For the past four years, I have been working on a 650-page treatise that explores the origins of human freedom from a natural law perspective. The book traces the recognition by scholars, jurists, theologians, and in the case of America at its founding, radical revolutionaries like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who truly believed and passionately argued that human freedom, our individual power to make unobstructed choices, comes from within us and not from the government. Most of the historical defenders of this truism also believed in God and argued that he made us free by giving us free will. Fifth paragraph. This understanding of natural rights was wedded to the United States at its birth in 1776 when Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, and again in 1791, when Madison wrote in the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution that because human liberty is so expansive, the government must protect even unstated, unnumerated rights, unenumerated rights. To protect our rights from whom? Sixth paragraph. The framers could easily answer that question if the folks who run the government today do not want it asked because the answer implicates them. In the revolutionary era, colonialists could protect themselves from evildoers attempting to steal their property or take their lives. But the foe they most feared was the government. They fought a bloody war against the government of King George III because it assaulted their economic rights and their right to self-government. History is repeating itself. Without the courageous revolutionaries, it is not my neighbor or even a thief in the night who impairs my personal liberty. It is the government. It does so just as King George did under the guise of safety. Yet the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were written precisely to prevent governments in America, state or federal, from interfering with our liberty, absent a jury trial at which they must prove fault. Seventh, this jury trial requirement is called due process. It is guaranteed by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, which mandate that the government comply with due process whenever it seeks to impair the life liberty, or property of any person. Of course, the constitutional guarantee is only as reliable as is the fidelity to the Constitution of those in whose hands we repose it for safekeeping. Eight. Now back to these nanny state governors. They have assumed to themselves the powers to write laws and enforce them the assumption violates the U.S. Constitution and the constitutions of the states in which they were elected because the power to write laws and the power to enforce laws is required to be separated in America. We call that the separation of powers. 
it is, according to my late friend, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, the most unique and freedom-protecting aspect of the Constitution, and it applies to states as well as to the federal government. Closing. Add to this the so-called lockdowns, a demeaning word originating in the shutdown of prisons during riots. That directly impair personal liberties that are not only natural to us, but are expressly guaranteed by the Constitution as the Supreme Court has interpreted it. These lockdowns interfere with the freedom to speak, travel, worship, assemble, engage in commercial intercourse, and use property to its highest and best use. Under federal law, when a government employee employs governmental tools to impair these um, enumerated rights and does so without due process, that person commits a felony. Thus, when governors use police powers to interfere with personal liberty, liberty that is expressly guaranteed by the Constitution, and do so without a trial at which the government proves fault, they have violated both state and federal law, no matter their reasoning. Thus, all these executive orders regulating private personal behavior are profoundly unconstitutional and even criminal. There is no pandemic exception to the Constitution. It is liberty that flows in our veins, not false promises of government safety. So I wanted to read that as an encouragement. I stand alone on the conviction of what the Bible tells us God's people do. I'm all for the free right of every person within this body to sequester, if that is your conviction with regard to not becoming ill. But I also want to say that for me and my conviction, I need to be here and I will be here and my family will be here and any that want to come in. So we welcome the first 25 and the second 25 and the third 25 whomever wants to come in obedience to the Lord, that we do not forsake the assembling together one to another. So I wanted to go on record on that. Nothing's changed in my heart. I so appreciated the timeliness of this document. He's a judge. I'm a teacher. I'm not currently employed, per se, as a public school teacher, but I have a license that says I can go into any school and teach. That hasn't changed. I can go in there, present my license, qualifications with which I did govern a classroom, and I would be honored to do that. In the same sense, as a pastor, I can stand on God's word and say, nothing has changed even though the disposition of our state may change. That's our right. And I actually am a governor of a church, and my special title is pastor. So I hope that you're encouraged and you pass that on. You can find it on the one of our... <laughs> you can find it perhaps on his website, Judge Napolitano. He's a respected judge. He did well and had even been considering in a Supreme Court perhaps appointment. He had had his name thrown in, I think, to the hat.
one time. So let's move on into our study for tonight. It'll be brisk, meaty, and wonderful. We're going to pick it up in Psalm 115, left off at 114 last week. The title of this that most of you may have relates to the futility of idols and the trustworthiness of God. But it may be equally reversed in simply saying to us the trustworthiness of God in the time of the idols of men. And so we do have idolatry in our secular society, and it has made its intrusions into our spiritual life, even within the church. That's why we stay anchored. That's why we do what we do. And that's why in coming here and attending Bible studies, we basically are who we are. We do what we do, and we are who we are, because it's all motivated by whom it is we love and whom we serve and whom we are devoted to. That's what keeps us really united, even though there may be differences in perspective. You know, whenever you can anchor yourself on a fair adjudication interpreted by biblical precepts, then really the difference between us is so marginal. It really only makes allowance for our unique personalities and not huge chasms that are forged because of imaginations and desires which have nothing to do with God. But this opens up to say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us. And I like the inflection. It really is the resignation of the author who wants nothing but God to receive all the glory. From Psalm 113 to about Psalm 118 to 19, I believe, are considered the psalms of the feast. It would have been from this, as I mentioned, I believe, last Thursday, that Jesus may have selected his hymns to be able to sing about the table. There's no doubt that our Lord was a singing Lord. It's funny because in the military, they have a cadence song. They usually, they've gotten very clever. Um, you know, my brother was uh, infantry, so he led platoons and larger than platoons. I forget what they're called beyond a platoon, but a lot of men. And many of the times that they would be on long distant marches, they would motivate themselves by cadence in songs that they would sing that kept them in footstep, kept their hearts tuned, kept their minds off the pain. And, uh, you know, my brother and I were talking about that. There's still something that pains him, and that's when somebody suggests that for recreation, hey, do you want to go on a hike? And he just coils up. I did that for 30 years. That really doesn't motivate me at all. <laughs> I separate the two. One is the discipline, but the other is the devotional part of it. There are things that pain us based on what we've come through, but the cadence in the song that basically is penned in these verses are highly motivational. Jesus, remember, 
At the close of his last meal with the disciples, cadenced them in a hymn, rising from the table and leading them out of the city, over the Kidron Brook, and to the place that he would find himself in deep, agonizing prayer. He cadenced them in the footsteps of a weary soldier, but one who was motivating himself based on these hymns. I think that's awesome. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name. Give glory. And we would say that, and I think it's appropriate in this political season, not unto us, Lord, but unto your name. Give glory to your name. You know, we know that there's something that is right about cheering for truth and justice and the American way. And I believe that the American way really is by its origins God's way because it was founded by people who left a place in which impeding upon their religious liberties, they said, this is enough and we will find a sanctuary in which we can worship God. That really was the motivation. It wasn't any other thing. And it was a spiritual motivation that moved the pilgrims through those very um, foreboding waters of the Atlantic to come and to plant churches in this new nation that we know as America. It was for God, not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? I like that. See, we are those who, as believers, can say much by what it is we do. I'm not talking about with pickaxes and shovels and the likes, industrial equipment. It's what we do in our passion to worship the Lord. Where we're at, whom we're with, and the pilgrimage. Blessed are those who set their minds on pilgrimage, one footstep after the other. I ran across, for me, a very extraordinary letter. It was penned by a really dear friend that I had uh, in the early years of ministry. We'd gone to high school together, and, <clears throat> and it was very amazing to me. I'm just going to share this so that you can kind of see the texture of this. Uh, my brother has archived all of the stuff from my father, and there's a bunch of my stuff that I pretty much just left behind. When I got the call to leave, I lockered things up. I threw things out. I left it alone. Nothing mattered to me but to just follow the Lord. And this particular friend of mine ended up joining me on this journey. Um, we became acquainted in high school. I would be in the stands, and we had at that time pep assemblies. The jazz band had come out, and this gentleman who became my real dear friend was a bass player. He was furious. I'd watch him just go, I mean, he'd just boom, bang, and then I'd see him in the football games, and he would be a drum major, and then I'd see him in the orchestra, and he'd be playing the oboe, 
he would be tearing the keys off the piano. He was a multi-instrumentalist and very secular until we met. We met in high school. He became a part of basically a band pretty much by rec resignation, but we ended up being separated by about 10 years or so. And we met at a Christian concert. We met in kind of a fog bank and we looked at each other and said, Rich, Peter, how are you doing? How are you doing? And that began to forge a ministry. And what I discovered in my doing is that it actually was his doing. He was seeking the Lord on a level that I had already had addressed in my heart and uh, became a prolific songwriter. And, and he heard the early works that I did. And at any rate, this document that I ran across was how the Lord had impressed him in what he discovered about me. I was completely flattered. If you had to have an epitaph read, it would be one that it qualifies as. Peter went to be with the Lord. He ended up uh, succumbing to depression. That's why this is very intriguing to me. He was an academician, high-functioning scholar. I think I got snuck into physics just because he ribbed the teacher just to have fellowship with me. I totally was terrible at physics. But what I am saying is that not to us, O Lord, but to thine be the glory. He lived his life to the day at least that he chose to take his life with that. I'll never forget him for what he did. He, he got behind me 100%. Um, but something, though, in the transaction of his life overwhelmed him. Didn't figure it out. He was a casualty of spiritual warfare. So what I'm saying is that you never can presume that who you are presently is not affecting somebody deeply and eternally. And though I would have loved Peter to have aged with me, and he knew Christy, he had met Christy, he was really, to me, an Eleazar for Christy. Um, he, he, he really cared and, and cared for me, cared for her. But um, his life was lived to that day, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name. And I just want to encourage you that you're never to underestimate the impression that you have. You do not know the writing that you've done on somebody's heart right now. It is not even worth considering that you're less than a magnificent inspiration in which somebody is writing something very special about your influence. Didn't discover it until I was rummaging through my brother's military office looking at photos of my dad, and I ran across this picture, and I never saw that. He never gave it to me. He actually penned it to my mom. So that being said is that for us, any of us, in times that we're in, which are for many depressive, it is not to us. It is unto thy name, O Lord, bring glory. So don't ever forget that for you to think anything less of yourself than what God does, or to presume that you have not indelibly marked a person's heart 
who would be able to draft a sweet document of inspiration and deep comfort. Don't ever let that be the voicing of the enemy. We find that in the continuance of this, because of your mercy, because of your truth, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? And they're limited on what they can say about our God based on the unlimited opportunities that we have of extolling God. Verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Pretty contemporary. We have much being said about those who are making much in times like this, but who have diminished the productivity of those whose very lives have been entrusted to the market, not only of choice, but of industry. And it's sad. Somebody's brokering it. Who's doing that? Satan has his foot in it. Why? Because the jingle jangle of money inspires those who can oppress and buy things such as truth. What does it mean to buy truth? Basically, it means to buy it up and hide it and to, in its place, give lies and innuendos, snickerings against God and the church. That's what we're seeing today and the wealth of those who do not honor God with their wealth, but take their wealth and make it an idol to basically oppress and conform people to its power. Money corrupts. Book of James has practical evidence of that regarding the corruption of how money can be used. The love of money. It's not simply the use of money, it's the love of money. But when you love money, you are easily able to be corrupted, and especially if you are godless. So when we look at this, and this is a familiar passage, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Idols don't have feelings. And because there are many who by the power of money have become corrupt, they have no feelings. They have become like that which they worship. Is it over for us? No, because we have a God who actually bankrolls spiritually every single one of us, making us immeasurably rich and wealthy beyond our imagination, ultimately for an inheritance that we enter into. But we are to occupy and in our occupancy, we are to take a stand for the Lord. We're to stand up for the Lord. And we're to stand up to people in truth and grace and proclaim the good tidings of the gospel message. There's a salvation message even in those who are messed up deeply in their thinking. The Antichrist will have 
an avenue by which he can conform people to what? His image. But we are conformed and made in the image of God. And we are being conformed to the personality and the nature of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's not to us. It's to God be the glory. Not to us, Lord, but to thy name be the glory. O Israel, verse 9, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, verse 11, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The trusting is implored to the nation. The trusting is implored to those in spiritual authority. The trust is implored to all who fear the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. Meaning not simply us, but theirs. It's a plural possessive. We possess the Lord personally, but the Lord also looks at it as a plural possessive. Many, many will trust in me and will fear me because of the one who stands up for me. Verse 12, the Lord has been mindful of us. We're on his mind. He knows there's a lot of things on our mind, but he's mindful of us. He's not mindless towards us. He's engaged, truly engaged. He's so engaged that as we move through the particular avenues that we travel and the time frames that we have, he speaks to us and he asks us to speak to others. Part of my dispatch was a call to assemble with my brother and to have an opportunity to talk with him. And it was good, but it was an act of obedience on my part. The conversation doesn't matter to you. It mattered to me because God put it upon my heart to be one who could deliver an encouraging word in a time of necessity and all is well. I was faithful to it. And that's what God wants. He wants those who are able to say, I hear you, Lord. I know what you will. I know what you want. Give me the means. Give me your spirit. Give me perfect timing. Dispatch my voice with precision. So, Though I know what it was about, the point that I'm simply making right now is that as he is mindful of us, he asks us to mind him, to take notice, to be as willing as I was 30 years ago when I left for Mexico as I was to come to Brookings and from Brookings to go to any place that in a moment's notice he would say, I dispatch you, speak my word encourage my people. So there were some things that I had to put as a secondary priority in order to prioritize what was on his mind and what I then had to translate with my heart. Maybe some of you are in that position too. My thoughts are, which I believe anchored in this, is the mind of the Lord, is that thank you for doing that. 
thank you for being here. It's important. It's very important. You have no idea how much of an encouragement it is, especially to a pastor to preside over people that say, I'm going to take a seat or I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to be where I can be, even though there's those that say I can't be. I'm going to anchor myself in the word. I'm going to exercise my faith, which is pleasing. It doesn't take away from those who elect in another avenue of conviction. Here's why. In a game, there's only so many people that can be on the field, right? You're the field players right now. You have your position. You're taking it up. Equally important are those who we don't see per se on the sideline because they're ready when the weary say, I got to take a breather, got to get some oxygen, got to sit down on the bench for a moment. And so the fear of the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help, he's their shield, the Lord's mindful of us. And notice this, his intention is to bless us. We need to have that encouraging word. He will bless us, not, <laughs> he might get blessed, I have no idea, right? Okay, good, see you later, God bless. Ooh, that's right, I should have said that because now it puts you in doubt. You have to be able to say, he will bless us. He will bless you. He's blessed me. You need to speak how the Lord has blessed you. It's intriguing to people. You know what drives some of them crazy? When you literally say, you know, I talked to the Lord the other day. And when you say, and he responded to me, he spoke to me. And this is what he said. This is where he directed me. Drives them crazy because you're saying that you're interacting with someone that they can't see and someone that they not even necessarily believe in, and you're authentically saying, I communicate with the living God. Pretty awesome. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Again, he will bless a nation. He will bless a spiritual house he will bless those who dwell in houses. He will do so both small and great. I'm so small. God couldn't take notice. Yes, he has. But I'm nothing to look at. I'm nothing to say I've accomplished anything for God, the small and the great. God does his most profound work in what we might say is the least of these. He's always done the contrary to what is the predicted normal. And that's why you're not to discount the work that he's doing here in this place. Look at this place. Three years in February and we're here. We're small. Are we? I think we're great. What's your opinion? I think we're great. You're a great group. God's done great things. And I believe he will continue to do that. That's my belief. That's my trust. As a nation, as a priesthood, as a domestic grouping of families that come together as a united spiritual family, that's God, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase. This may be for you right now just a promise. All of this may be. But what if for a moment 
you said, could God give me just a word that I could believe and leave here with happy feet? Okay, let's try this on. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. If he's given earth to the children of men, is it any difficult thing that you being a child of God for him to say, I'm going to give you increase because you're ready for it. You've been prepared for it. You have learned to live leanly, and I now give you the fat of the land. I give you the fat of the spirit. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's not the epitaph that I would desire in that closing. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. Because we have a sure hope, we do not simply go down, but we go immediately up. My brother and I were talking about that yesterday. He quoted a passage, and I said, you know the where that's from, don't you? No. Well, you're quoting it accurately, but Grandma Adamson penned that in her Bible, and I actually read that at her memorial when I was sitting in a church. And we talked about this church that my grandmother was the organist for in my Grandfather was the clarinetist for. They did that their entire life. And I said that's Psalm 90, verse 10. And it is a powerful verse. Seventy years hath a man been given, eighty if due by strength. And yet it says, but its end is basically vanity, and we fly away. And so part of our conversation dealt with the settling of an estate. It dealt with his hard years in the Marine Corps. It dealt with many of the pressures that continued to be a part of his deal. But we were talking about that. And part of it is the fact that, you know, as twins in particular, you know, we realized that, that we have a very unique relationship. There are things that I can't possibly imagine in terms of what he went through. Many of you who have been vets in the service to our country and living your life literally in peril, that was Rob. But our conversation wasn't so much on that, it just that that was a portion of it. And what I was simply saying is that in that conversation, it was both agreed upon that, you know, Rob, you know, our legacy is to live our life fruitfully until the end. And so we're, we were kind of doing the math. We looked at old photographs together, and one was with my father. And I don't know how I got left out of the picture, but he was with my dad. My dad was in his flight jacket, his arm around Rob, at 4626 Willett Drive in Annandale, Virginia. It was 1966. So we're just about nine years of age, and my dad's arm is around Robert. I'm going, hey, where was I? But the point I was making is we were calibrating. Dad was 50 in that picture. 
dad had us, we came into his life at 41. And so all of us were just, we were just compressed right now into a review of our life saying, but look at how faithful God has been to us. Now we're 63, Lord willing, we'll touch at 64. And we were all just making this analogy of that psalm, but I was putting it also into this. The Lord will bless us. The Lord has blessed us. He'll continue to have his way with us. We're finding out, I am, you know, one of my, I think a dear friend and associate just passed away. I found that out on Sunday. Christy allowed me to know that. If any of you go to the website and you look up under Testament music songs, you'll find a song there called Happy Day. Have any of you heard that song on the website? Okay. If you hear that song, that song was uh, produced by a gentleman that just went up to the great production facility in heaven. He was taken to be with the Lord. But if you listen to it, I'm the voice on it with him and a couple of other studio musicians, but he literally is the total instrument layout of the song. I encourage you to listen to it. I think one, you'd find it to be funny, deeply spiritual. (laughs) It was a hit. That was my one hit wonder back in 2000. I was famous for like one Easter and then I faded into oblivion. But his name was Greg Eckler, and on it, he's the drum player, he's the bass player, he is the lead guitar player, he's the background vocalist. I was the high vocalist. I I did the kind of Brian Wilson Beach Boy voice. But he's with the Lord. And and I just thought to myself, wow, It's it's already the footsteps towards the closure. And I'm missing guys like that, but at the same time, I am one that I'm able to say he is not one that is not praising the Lord. He is not dead. He's with the Lord, and he's praising the Lord. And it says in this closure, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. So though I miss him, and I do, wish I would have had one more interaction with him. I can't except to inevitably go where the other saints go. And I hope there is a great band in heaven. I hope I get to play better than I do. But he was awesome. If you listen to that, you'll see a man that gave, in my opinion, his life to the Lord. And his wife, Taryn, now is a soloist for now, but with the Lord strongly. But in the closure... We find our encouragement in the Word of God, and we find our life meaningful because God is mindful of us, both as a nation, what he wants to do with us, as a priesthood, what he has ordained for us, as domestic pilgrims who have a legacy in the homes that God has given to us. So stay connected with your loved ones, certainly by prayer, visits. Speak to them encouragement. I was highly encouraged by my brother. We were encouraged together. We opened up the word and got immersed in truth concerning life and how to live it. Because we do. We need to live it. 